0: I'm Alan Olga, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating.
1: I pick up the phone when I get to CBS. I say, I'm Dr. John LaPook from CBS News. Guess what? They pick up the phone, and suddenly I'm on the phone with the world's expert or a world's expert in whatever this field was. Then I would start writing the piece with my producers, who are so important. The piece goes on at 6.30, no matter what. You know, I I ended up, amazingly ended up doing 60 Minutes pieces. And uh, at 60 Minutes, they say, uh, the piece goes on the air when it's done. Uh, For the evening news, the piece goes on the air at 6.30. (laughs) So so it's going on the air.
0: Dr. John LaPook is the chief medical correspondent for CBS News. And he's had to master the art of conveying complex medical information in a few seconds of airtime. That's a task more challenging than ever in the age of COVID. John is also a friend, so just last week I took the opportunity to grab a few minutes of his time to ask him how he does it and how he juggles being a professor of medicine at New York University's Langone Medical Center with regular appearances on the nightly news. This is so great to be talking with you because you have such an interesting life in communication. How did you get the job, to be the chief correspondent for CBS <laughs> News, in which you keep us informed about our mm-hmm. our general health and the emergencies involved with our health, like the pandemic we're going through now. Yeah. How did How did that happen for you?
1: Well, it, it's basically go plan a life. Um, I had absolutely no intention or plan to do this. I had a couple of times, a handful of times been on the Today Show with Katie Couric, I did something about uh, defibrillators, the first live demonstration of a defibrillator. And so I was on there, I got friendly with her. She was pregnant with Carrie, her second daughter at the time. Uh, And then, you know, sadly, her husband Jay got sick, he had colon cancer. I ended up uh, sort of helping her to try to think about it. I wasn't her doctor or Jay's doctor. And I helped arrange for the famous colonoscopy she had in 2000, um, where she went on air had a colonoscopy, led to the, uh, the Katie Couric effect, where in the, in the short period of time afterwards, uh, the number of screening colonoscopies in the area studied went up 20%. So It's a great lesson
0: in communication, especially mass communication, yeah. how you can affect the health of an entire culture by somebody who you trust going through an experience, a medical experience that maybe the rest of the people shy away from.
1: Yes. It was her idea, and I just helped arrange it. But uh, So we, be, we knew each other, and then it's it's March of 2006. She had been announced as the first female sole anchor of the, of the CBS Evening News. And I get a phone call, and she said, I have a business proposition for you. I said, what? She said, how would you like to be the medical correspondent for uh, CBS Evening News? I said, do you have to know anything? She said, no. I said, great.
0: <laughs> I can well, that do that. <laughs> brings, that brings up a really big question to me. Here you are a doctor. You were practicing medicine, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's the first. Doesn't this first take love. a huge amount of effort to time to prepare for even a short spot on television? You have to know exactly what the latest information is. You have to know it about is, the but studies you know, Alan, and
1: all of that. Alan, it ended up being the greatest continuing medical education you could possibly have. But, you know, it in the morning, pretty much I structured my day. So in the morning I saw patients, you know, like eight to one, so or so. And then I would walk over to CBS News. So CBS News was at 57th and 10th, and my office was in the East 60s. So I would just take a walk over, and then the rest of the day would be, uh, would be that. Everybody at CBS knew, and this was the, this is the ground rules, which, which they were wonderful about, that the Hippocratic Oath always took precedence over the Nielsen ratings. So <clears throat> if I had a sick patient, that's what I was going to be doing. But The beautiful thing was I would come over and maybe I would hear in the morning there's going to be a story about the latest uh, drug to try to treat heart attacks. I'd bring myself maybe up to 60, 70% of what I need to know very quickly. Then I pick up the phone when I get to CBS. I say, I'm Dr. John LaPooke from CBS News. Guess what? They pick up the phone and suddenly I'm on the phone with the world's expert or a world's expert in whatever this field was. So by the time, then I would start writing the piece with my producers, who are so important, uh, in the mid-late afternoon. Uh, The piece goes on at 6.30, no matter what. You know, I I ended up, amazingly ended up doing 60 Minutes pieces. And uh, at 60 Minutes, they say, uh, the piece goes on the air when it's done. Uh, For the evening news, the piece goes on the air at 6.30. (laughs) So so it's going on the air.
0: You cover the news in medicine. Mm -hmm. But it seems to me that one of the biggest problems, and maybe you have a problem that's even bigger than this, but for me it may be the most difficult question right now, is the avoidance of... Of science by so many people. Mm-hmm. They don't seem to regard it with the same the same sense of, uh, of trust that they did before. And the worst part of it is they say, you told me one thing last year, coffee is bad for you. Now you're telling me coffee is good for me. And wine went through three or four permutations of the same mm-hmm. kind. Mm-hmm. You people can't make up your minds. How would you describe that problem? Is it a serious problem that we have?
1: It's it's a huge problem. There's a, a huge anti-science kind of feeling movement. I asked Tony Fauci about this because I did an interview with him about one year ago now for sixty minutes. I asked him about that. He said it's also anti-authority. You know, uh, don't tell me what to do, which which I think we're we're seeing now with the mandates, the pushback about you know don't tell me what to do. But I think you you really nailed it in terms of uh, such an important thing, which is people look. They're not used to, suddenly they're plunged into a pandemic and they're having to read about science and they're not really, we're not that science literate, I think, as a country. And one of the big things is that science is, an ev- the the art of science, the scientific method is an evolving process. What do you do? Do
0: you make a conscious effort to get the audience to understand that science is evolving? Do you, do you tend to include that? notion in many of your reports?
1: So um, <laughs> it depends which venue. 60 minutes, I've got 12 or 13 minutes. And in fact, we did that very thing with Tony Fauci again a year ago, because you may remember that there was an initial recommendation, say in February, uh, that said, you know, you don't need to wear masks. And at that point, one of the key facts was, the, the key thoughts was that you had to be symptomatic, really, in order to spread it. That 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 the pandemic or the pandemic was going to be spread. Or epidemics are generally spread by people who are symptomatic. So at, also there was a shortage of masks. We were worried about people, um, you know, who were professionals, who were health professionals, not having enough, and we weren't sure masks really worked. Well, after that, like about a month later, certainly by the beginning of April, Tony came back. Tony Fauci came back and said. Now we know that you can spread it when you're asymptomatic. That's huge. Mm. So you, you could walk into a room, feel perfectly fine, and be spreading it. There were some aerosol scientists and others who did wonderful experiments showing that masks, actually, to a varying degrees, are are effective. And then the mask shortage started to be relieved. So the advice changed. The analogy is is sort of a, you hear the weatherman, and he's it's pouring outside. He says it's it's pouring. I want you to wear a raincoat. Uh, the next day when, when the sun comes out, you don't say, well, wait a second, you're telling me I don't need a raincoat today? Yesterday you said I needed a raincoat. Well, you know, <laughs> that was to- that was yesterday. This is today. I love that analogy.
0: So let's say you're doing a piece on CBS and you have 20 or 30 seconds to make this point and say something so <laughs> clear, so vivid that the public listening will say, oh, wait a minute, Fauci isn't lying to me. He's telling me what he knows now.
1: Well, an average piece right now for the CBS Evening News is about a minute 30. <laughs> Maybe it's a minute 45. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It could be a minute 20. So to, to do the nuance of it like that is really tough. And I, I think that's one of the frustrations that there isn't enough time. There's a lot of news. And so you've got to say things quickly. What I try to do for the general audience is to say, I know I'm talking to six million people, but I'm going to try to imagine I'm just talking to my one patient, my one precious patient. Mm. Say it in a way that they can understand. Be empathetic. Don't be cocky. Don't be saying, you know, here's what you got to do, and I know it, and I'm sure here's what the information shows. I mean, if you've been a doctor for five years and you have any degree of cockiness left in you, you're in the wrong profession. (laughs) You know, I mean, you, you learn humility right away.
0: Obviously, empathy means a lot to you, as it does to me and the work that I do. Tell me about the Empathy Project.
1: How did you come up with that? What is it and how did it start? Uh, well, this is, this is something I'm going to be doing for the rest of my life, is the Empathy Project. So the Empathy Project came about in a, I don't think I ever told you this story, Alan. I saw. Do you remember Wit with with Judith Light? It was it was on yeah. Broadway, and then they made a movie about it. But well, I saw it in Broadway, and um, it's a story uh, just gut wrenching about a woman who was dying of ovarian cancer, and the way the terrible way that she's treated uh, by the medical profession who are un- unempathetic. And uh, the lights go out, and I'm sitting in the in the chair, and I just I'm floored, and I went out and I, I spoke to Bernie Telsey, the producer, who was, a, who was somebody we knew, and I bought 150 tickets, and I, I took every member of the first year medical school class at Columbia p and I said, here's a free ticket, go see this play. Hmm. Well, fade out, fade in, over the years, I'd get some emails, You know, I just want to let you know how much that meant to me. And then around 2013, I got an email from somebody saying, you probably don't remember this or me, but you sent us to see wit. It was the most important thing I learned in medical school. Wow. This is now like 13 years later. And suddenly the light bulb goes off. And I thought, "Okay, I'm in the middle of a wheel through, believe me, no design of my own, where... The spokes go out to medicine, business, uh, journalism, entertainment, because my family is in—my uh, father-in-law is uh, in deeply into uh, entertainment, and I've had exposure Norm- to Norman
0: it. Lear. Norman Lear <laughs> changed entertainment for the whole culture.
1: <laughs> yeah, and uh, you heard my, my slight hesitancy. I don't like to lead with that because I feel—but I'm super proud of it. Um I of you know, course I, I, understand. I, I love I love Norman I don't want to seem like i'm I'm name dropping when I mention his name but but he's you know i I've, I've had a master class at the feet of Norman Lear for, <laughs> for the past what has it been nineteen eighty three so thirty eight years and the miracle of my life was meeting his daughter Kate Lear. the odds of that were zero by the way different story, but magic of the universe um So I I thought, well, what if we brought all these things together, you know, entertainment and business and journalism and all these these really interesting people together and did something? And what's more important than empathy? So the idea was to make Hollywood quality short films, to try to teach clinicians in training, young doctors and others, uh, to be more empathetic, sensitive and competent. And on the other side, to empower patients to demand that. And we, we, we started making these movies. And uh, I told Delia Efren, who I knew about it, and she said, I very rarely, Alan, remember exact words, but I remember what she said. She said, and I quote, this is my destiny. Mm-hmm. Because she had just gone through a big illness with her sister, Nora, and, yeah. uh, you know, was raw from that and said, uh, uh, you know, th- this is my destiny. And we've made a bunch of films. Uh, she wrote one called Listening. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I I watched that, and it's very well written and very well played. So the next one, Tom Fontana wrote. He did a very personal one. Uh, this was about uh, a, a senior surgeon who did an operation, and then instead of him, it didn't go well, and instead of him coming out and telling the family, he sent a junior resident who had never met the family mm, to go out and tell yeah, them. Yeah, that, that,
0: that's the kind of the kind of encounter born of discomfort and the unwillingness to share your discomfort. Yes. That is a part of, of a lack of empathy, mm-hmm. isn't it? What do you do with these films? These films are very well made. They're well written, well acted, well lit, well photographed. <laughs> do you show them to the students so and then yes. talk about it? or what, What's the process after they watch the film?
1: Absolutely. So by the way, Brian Darcy James and, and Annalie Ashford were in The Family. We did some with Second City Chicago that was short and funny. And then the last one, which we'll get to your question, was about a year and a half ago, of course, Black Lives Matter um, became a huge issue. Um, and uh, there was a lot of talk in the university at, at NYU Langone about this issue and about um uh, diversity and about health equity, healthcare equity. And we decided since we were kind of a, a PT boat that could move kind of quickly, let's do a film about implicit bias and racism in medicine, which exists. We decided to do an animation. So, fortunately, <laughs> Delia's friend is Phil Johnston. Phil Johnston wrote a little film called Zootopia, which is a Disney film that won an Academy Award about racism. And uh, so he ended up uh, writing this animated film, about six minutes long. Uh, Delia helped out also. The voices that we have are Whoopi Goldberg and Ed Helms and uh, Danielle Brooks and LaTanya Richardson-Jackson. And uh, it took us about a year and a half to make this and most, a lot of the time, was this script, which to me, I never learned so much, Alan, in my entire life. We interviewed close. To, I just counted up in the in the credits how many people we thanked who actually participated. I mean, we we actually interviewed and talked to and had contributions from more than a hundred people. And I remember, I remember Delia saying, "You know, you can't have a writers' room that's this huge number of people." <laughs> but we, you know, here, you know, I'm a white guy. I'm an older white guy. We're doing a film that's out of my comfort zone. I'm I'm reading like everybody else, all the books that we're all reading and trying to educate myself. But what an education this was because we interviewed all these people, a lot of people of color and especially women of color. And Alan, the point of intersection for so many of them was it's it's exhausting as a woman of color to be seen and to be heard. Mm. I get up, I'm going to the doctor, I put on my clothes, here I am. They're thinking, you know, as there was one specific example, um, I've got to get up. I'm in pain. What do I wear to look to so that I'm ex- I look acceptable? And how do I speak? I'm in pain, but I don't want my voice to sound angry. I don't want that trope of an angry black woman. And uh, I want them to know I'm educated. I'm, you know, oh, by the way, I'm a software program. And on and on and on. And, you know, one of the 60-minute pieces I had done, which helped inspire this, was Janelle Stevenson, this amazing genetic cure of sickle cell anemia. You might you might have seen it. It's just incredible. She talked about, I mean, it's a happy ending. She ends up getting this genetic treatment, gene therapy, and she's fine. At the end, she's running in the forest. It's amazing. But when she's talking about what her experience is, she went to this emergency room where she had been many times times before they knew that she had sickle cell anemia. And she, she describes a moment she's literally on the floor. She's on the floor. There's a doctor over her, looking down at her, accusing her of faking the pain to get drugs. Huh. So this is all in this film. It's and in I'll the quick- film, I remember. But, but I, I know it's too late. I, know, I like when people say, to make a long story short, we're way past that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, quickly, I'll quickly finish it up. The theme of the film is we use this guy, you know Dr. Gunderson, he's 40 years old. He, he's great. He's, he gets the beginning, you know, he gets on a subway. He gets, he's reading James Baldwin. He gives up his seat on the subway to a pregnant woman. He's a great guy. Hi, how are you? And We tell, we say he's a great doctor. The problem is he doesn't know what he doesn't know. And what he doesn't know is his own implicit bias. And even if he were, there is no such thing, but a perfect person dropped down into the medical encounter who's perfect. They're perfect. It doesn't matter if the person who they're seeing, in this case, a young woman of color, uh, doesn't know it. So she's coming in with her own experiences in the film. It's that she witnessed, you know, her mother had a burst appendix and was uh, had severe pain, and she was accused like Janelle was. Janelle Stevenson was up faking her pain. She was stamped, which we could do with an anime (laughs) with in an animation on her foreheads said drug seeker. And so she's got that history that even though it was legitimate pain, she was accused. Her mother was accused, which and and she was a young girl at the time, and it made an impression. So now when she comes into that encounter, she's holding back. She's not. She doesn't know whether, whether to trust this person. And plus, her experiences with other doctors, they haven't really listened to her. And that, for me, for a young doctor, for a young doctor, Alan, how important is that? Because it's an ego injury to say to them, oh, by the way, here's all the problems. You're, you're racist. You're implicit. But, you know, you don't want, you know, nobody wants to think that, any of that. But we all have implicit bias, and if they can still hold on to, I'm a good person, I'm trying the best I can, like all of us, and yet I have this implicit bias. And so that's easier for them to learn than if you just start, you know, pointing fingers and saying... Pointing a finger, Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, I think that animated film makes the points so vividly that you can learn by watching it. I'm wondering about the scenes... In other videos in a doctor's office, for instance, where the doctor does not show empathy, doesn't show Mm -hmm. active listening, is a one-way street with the patient. Is that sufficient for students to look at and learn not to do it? Or do you have some kind of training that goes, that follows up on it, that makes use of what they've just seen?
1: So perfect question, because no, it's not enough to just put it out there. So the first film that we made, which kind of had a caricature of a doctor who wasn't really listening. The person came in and he was ordering Yankee tickets and she said something really important that he missed. It's okay to show the bad behavior, but it's different when you're teaching. They want us, we learned, we made this mistake at the beginning, but we learned they want to know the right way. So in the movie by Tom Fontana, The Family, first we did a six or seven minute film that was what happened. Then we did it again. What if it, what if it had been done the right way or a better way? There's no wrong way, right way, a better way. And we have found that, that's, that that is being taught right now to medical students and residents. I was there in August. It was thrilling. At the debut, the premiere of our animated film on implicit bias and racism, it was shown to 183 people at Albert Einstein. Uh, and I then we broke into little sessions and we talked about it. And then... We did the same thing at NYU Langone at the Grossman School of Medicine. And it was, it was thrilling. And we also did it for third-year students. And Alan, it was a different take. It was really interesting. When we spoke to the first-year students, they, they were very empathetic and they were very into it. And they, they were kind of like civilians. They were like newly minted doctors. So they came at, at it from that point of view. What was fascinating was the third-year students who were already on the wards, they came back with more sophisticated points. They said, okay, I can be empathetic, but I'm in a system that where I'm behind the eight ball. I've got six minutes, seven minutes to see a patient. I've got the computer. I've got all this stuff. And they're exactly right. So we have to be teaching people empathy on an individual basis. We have to name that. We have to say, you're going to be graded on that, which means changing some of the structural things and communication and uh, amount of time that people have and even reimbursement type of uh, structure. So. It's it's a heavy lift, but I'm going to be doing it for the rest of my life. It's, I'm I'm just I'm lit up by this, and I think it's not just medicine. Of course, the whole world is shy of empathy right now. You know, it's the same issues of trying to understand where somebody else is coming from and listening.
0: When we come back from our break, I ask John LePouc for a sneak preview of a story he's working on that has special meaning to me personally. After this. Clear and Vivid can be downloaded for free because it's supported by our sponsors and by, as they say, people like you. But there are no people like you. You're you. We want to make sure you know about Patreon.com slash Clear and Vivid. That's where, if you love hearing from the extraordinary guests we have on our shows, you can become a patron and get early access to special videos. And at the highest tier, you can join me in our monthly get-together online. I think you'll find out that the listeners to our podcast are often as much fun to hear from as our guests. We're grateful to you all. Thank you. And don't forget to check out patreon.com clearandvivid. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Dr. John LaPook. You're doing a report soon on something that sounds very interesting to me personally, which is dancing for Parkinson's. Yes. Tell me about that. What
1: are the benefits of dancing for
0: Parkinson's
1: patients? So there is a woman named Carolina Burse, who I interviewed yesterday, and she's up uh, in... Toronto, and she did a three-year study where she took half the people, I think it was like 16 people in the control group, and 16 people who were given weekly dance therapy uh, sessions. There's a whole movement of Mm -hmm. dance for PD, dance for Parkinson's disease. What the study showed, which blew this researcher away, was that normally you would have a, there's a whole scale there's a parkinson scale which you know about which you know you add up all the different things that can happen you have motor problems you can have problems mm-hmm. with speech and you can even problems with anxiety and depression and on and on and on well there's a scale where you add a lot of these up you give points to them and it turns out that in the first few years after the diagnosis of parkinsons that it kind of goes down uh, you you end up uh, declining in function over those say you know 3 to 5 years well, they found that that happened in the control group, but the people who were doing the dance regime, uh, they stayed the same. They mm. didn't have a significant decline. Uh, and I'm tapping my toes <coughs> as you talk. And go get Arlene and start dancing. <laughs> is she nearby? <laughs> 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 this is a, that's an amazing result. I asked, how, how, you know, how do you explain it? And she said, dance is multisensorial. You know, you have... Of course, movement. You have touch. There's music. There's a lot going on. There's social interaction. It it lights a lot of fires under a lot of different senses in the brain. So music, we know, does that. And the anthropologists and the scientists have told me, uh, you know, some people think that music was the first language potentially, and it's kind of stored everywhere in the brain. It's hard to kill. And so when you start doing dance it's lighting up so many different areas and they don't really know, is it increasing dopamine? I asked her in the basal ganglia, substantia nigra in the middle of the brain, the place where they're making a lot of dopamine. We think maybe. I said, is it increasing connections? Is it making it a smoother pathway? She said, maybe. (laughs) So they're studying that now. They they have the observation, they wanna know why, but at the end of the day, she said, you know what? I may not know why it's working, but it's working. So, um, yeah. which brings me to you. So tell me how you're doing with, with your Parkinson's, which you've been public about.
0: Yeah, I'm making, I can't say I'm making progress because the disease makes progress at a, at a rate that you're not really aware of. So I don't know if I'm holding it back or diminishing the symptoms or what, but I've been doing exercises based on boxing, which is good. It helps with balance it helps with putting your whole body into a motion. I, I had a tendency as the, as the disease progressed to use my hands like flippers more, you know, just the hand is doing the work. But in fact, if your whole body goes into a punch, that gets you used to the idea that in life, lifting up a cup might actually be more than just a hand and an arm. And you get used to incorporating those Those elements. Since COVID, I'm not, uh, I'm not face to face with my boxing partner, so I'm not actually hitting anything. I'm just hitting the air, but I, I've benefited from a lot of weird things. I one of my favorite things is to march to Sousa music around the living (laughs) room. Really, it's a little. Probably, it's a little like the dancing. Yes, that's what I thought of when you said that. It's rhythmic, it's active. I take big strides. Swing my arms, and the fact that it's to music makes it possible to do it longer than if it was just a dull exercise that had no no reason to keep going. Actually, I read that there was a study where, if you make your own music, if you sing a song and march to that, that that's even more effective. You you ought to look up the look up the study. I don't I don't want to promote an idea that's not no legit. no no.
1: I think I think it's amazing. And so fascinating that you have kind of come up with your own dance for Parkinson's disease. I mean, there's this whole formal program. There was a study, but Alan Alda came up with his own program that's doing kind of the same thing.
0: I experiment all the time. I found out if I rub my fingers across a rub of rough surface, that the it, it it kind of modifies the tremor and sometimes makes it stop. So. For a while, I carried sandpaper in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> Until your fingers got down to a
1: nubs, and then you had to stop. <laughs> right. And now, now they don't shake anymore, because there's none left. <laughs> That's, well, do you think that the boxing and the marching is actually helping?
0: I can't tell. You know, the interesting thing about Parkinson's is it's different for every person to a great extent. And for each person, it's different day to day. Some days there's a problem with tremor. Sometimes there's more a problem with stiffness. Sometimes balance is the main problem. It changes to be, and, and presumably progress is going on. More cells are continuing to die because mm-hmm. nobody knows how to keep them alive yet or to replace them. But there, I'm, I'm constantly reading studies and I'm looking for new research. I have a personal preference. For non invasive therapies.
1: How long have you had the Parkinson's for, do you think, in retro now looking
0: back? I was diagnosed about six years ago. But but I, you know, I might have had it before that, but I surely had it before that, because by the time symptoms show up, something like seventy or eighty percent of the dopamine producing neurons are out of business.
1: What's the arc been like for you over
0: the last six years or so? How are you doing? The first visible sign was a slight twitch in my thumb, a little, little, little twitch. Mm-hmm. Then within a year or two, I had an actual tremor in my, my whole hand, and I was getting stiff. It's hard to put shoes on. Michael Fox said to me a wonderful thing, though. He said, if it takes me five minutes to put on a shoe, I don't say it took five minutes. I say I got my shoe on.
1: I love that. And that's pretty much the way I've been working. Yeah. I wonder now that you're in the belly of the beast, to some extent, looking at these interactions from the inside, if you've had some epiphanies. I don't know. I think I've relearned what I learned originally.
0: One of the things that we focus on Stony Brook at the Alder Center for Communicating Science is what the other person is going through when you talk to them. It's it's empathy. When I talk to you, what are you feeling? What are you sensing? What are you understanding? Or let's say when you're the person who has a problem, you're super aware of, of the way other people talk to you. Sometimes they try to be helpful and they help you across the room when you don't really need it. And you got to have a little empathy for them and say, they're trying to help. They're unused to the idea.
1: So that's interesting. There's another kind of dance that's going on. There's the dance that you yeah. could use for therapy, but there's a kind of an emotional dance of you're, you're being empathetic to them. They're trying to help you. There's a, there's a dance, right? It takes two to tango. Right,
0: though. right. And when people explain to you what you have, and explain to you why they think they can make it better, they have to be aware of what you're able to understand or mm-hmm. how you're able to process it. So I'm relearning that lesson all the time, both from the patient's point of view and from the explainer's point of view.
1: And I think, you know, in, in you and I both, when we're teaching people our students and when we're teaching ourselves, <laughs> you know, um, we, which, is, which is just as much because when, you know, I guess when you look at what's been going on right now, we have to have not only empathy for our, you know, our patients, but empathy for each other, because we're going through a tremendous amount in the, in the medical profession right now with COVID. Uh, it's devastating. I remember in March of 1981, I was an intern at uh, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, and I was a newly minted doctor. I thought I was gonna save lives left and right, and then I saw my first patient with AIDS and I can still remember him. He was in the first bed on the left. Anyway, you know, the rest, we didn't even know it was called AIDS. We didn't know uh, it was caused by a virus at that point. And uh, every single patient with AIDS who I saw for the next several years died, every single one of them. And, um, huh. but we weren't given any kind of empathy, empathetic support. We weren't giving, given any psychological support for sure. It was just, okay, on with the next patient. And so when COVID hit in March of, uh, 2020, uh, really hit in New York City. I ended up going to the COVID wards at NYU Langone. I was there in April, not because I thought I was going to help them medically, but psychologically, I wanted to talk to the younger doctors, the students, the nurses, and say, hey, let's make sure that you are kind to yourselves, that you're empathetic to each other, and that you get you seek help, which, which I hadn't done. Of course, they were far ahead of me. They realized that you got to you know, they were show, They were holding up face, you know, FaceTime uh, videos for people who couldn't see their relatives, so they could see their relatives. They were. There was one one idea that I had, which was to write on the on the uh, glass door leading to a patient's room, to write just three things about that person inside, who you couldn't tell who they oh, were. Oh, what
0: a good idea! I said, yeah, that's, "That's great." It's a
1: grandfather. He likes golf. He just got a dog, and now instead of the guy in the bed, it's a person who's a grandfather, who likes golf, who has a dog.
0: I wish we had more time in the day to talk. We're reaching the end of our time, but we always end every show with seven quick questions. Okay. And they invite seven quick answers. Are you ready? You game?
1: I am game
0: what do you wish you really understood
1: oh uh you know (laughs) it goes back to when i was a little kid i mean eight or nine or ten and i would lie in bed and i would think okay if there's the end of a universe uh what's one foot beyond that if there's a beginning of time what's one minute before that and if there's a god who created God? And it, it was, an, now I realize it was like an existential crisis, but it was driving me nuts. And I finally put it all in a box that I call magic, which I believe in. It's all part of, we don't even know, we don't know the answers. We don't even know the questions. And it's there and it stayed there. And I'd kind of like to know some of the answers <laughs> to that. Uh, you sound
0: like an interesting eight-year-old. <laughs> I'd like to have talked to that oh, eight-year-old gosh. in person.
1: Next question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? (laughs) You know, Alan, it depends the setting. If it's in medicine, I'm in the emergency room, we're doing a crash. Uh, Somebody hands me the wrong size angiocath, you know, an IV. I don't say... uh, you know, um, the last crash we had, you, you did so beautifully, but, but this time, I, you know, so <laughs> you just say, give me the, give me the, give me the, give me the 16 gauge, right? Um, because you're in a setting <laughs> where you realize, which is part of your question, you realize you're smart, I'm smart, let's just get from here to there. If you're out in the real world where people have feelings, you may have to be uh, a little more uh, careful with how you say things. But I, I think if you always leave people an out, You don't want to back anybody into a corner, but if you leave them in out, um, I understand why you thought that, but as opposed to you, ignoramus, you know, it's, it's again, the empathy, it's how you say it.
0: Next question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever (laughs) asked you?
1: You know, you reminded me of it because uh, I guess strange, unexpected odd was in March of 2006, I get this phone call from Katie Couric <laughs> saying, would uh, you like strange. to be the medical correspondent for the CBS Evening News? <laughs> I said, what?
0: Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker?
1: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, if there's somebody else there, it's a little easier, I think, because when they, it, when they stop talking for two seconds, um, you ask the other person a question that's good. (laughs) That's good.
0: Okay. Next one. You're at a dinner table and you're sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you start up a genuine conversation with that person?
1: Oh, I I think you just start small, you know, ask some question about themselves, you know, tell me about yourself, but in a way that's genuine because it's, I'm curious and they're curious. And if they're curious, it'll, it'll lead to good places. What gives you confidence? I have to say, it comes from you know. There's two ways of taking that. What what gives me confidence in my life from the beginning, and what gives me confidence now going forward. But I would say my confidence comes from my fa- the love and support of my family. Just basically, hmm. you know, I had an amazing family. My both my parents are gone now, uh, but my uh, my mother was uh, she would she she'd be about to she'd be about to peel an orange, and she'd hold the orange in her hand, and she would say, at this moment, this orange has never seen the light of day. And then she'd <laughs> peel it, you know, this orange, this moment. And that gave me an appreciation of the moment. And then my dad, who, by the way, you know, he, my parents knew your dad, Bob Alder, Bob and Flora. They knew, their, sure, knew, your, I know. knew your parents. Well, oh, oh, wait, no, I didn't know your parents knew them. My parents knew them, and in fact, here's my memory, which you, I think you don't know this, in 1971, I was in Rome, with a, it was a hospital trip that my father, and in walks Bob Alda with his wife, Flora. And here's my image of your dad. He was gorgeous, he was tanned, and he had a sweater that he, he draped, were draped over, his, over his back with the arms <laughs> yeah. tied in the front, right? Or draped yeah. in the front. Crossed. Chris, does that sound familiar to you?
0: Oh yeah, he was very theatrical. Oh my gosh. Okay, last question. What
1: book changed your life? You know, um, so first of all, I I want to confess something, which is I listened to all your podcasts over the weekend. I was driving back from Vermont, so I knew these questions were coming. I don't want people to think I'm just coming up with this book. So I was trying to think of that book question. And the book question, <laughs> <laughs> so I love your guests who go, hmm, I, I never thought of that. I'm like, don't you ever listen to his podcast? Come on. You you ask that at the end of every one. But, and they're great. They're, everybody should look at your old podcast. But um, I know the answer to this, which is The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. Because oh. in 1971, after I was in ninth grade, my mother in particular said, you're going to go to Andover uh, for the summer session. And... Um, and I took two courses, one on biology and one on writing English for scientists, English for scientists. And, and Rudolf Flesch, the, uh, the Art of Readable Writing, but the big one was Strunk and White's, The Elements of Style. And what it did was it said, don't use the passive voice. Don't do longer when you can do shorter. There's that famous thing that's attributed to Mark Twain, but I was looking it up. It goes beyond be, way before him, which is, I'm sorry I, I wrote such a long letter. I didn't have time to write a short one. And I think right. that became very important for, for um, television because I have to say things very succinctly, very quickly, and it's amazing what you can say in a minute 30. So, you know... Your whole life has been preparing you
0: for what you're doing now. And who knows what is prepared for you for what you're going to do in the future. This has been such a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad you took the time to come on with because you've got so much in your life that you have to do. I appreciate the time you've taken. Thanks so much, John. Take care. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid, up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. John LePouc is professor of medicine at New York University's Langone Medical Center. He's been the chief medical correspondent for CBS News since 2006, where his reporting has won numerous awards. He founded the Empathy Project in 2014, and you can find out more about the project and see the films it's produced, including the just-released animated film he talked about called The Elephant in the Room at EmpathyProject.com. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Jean Chemay. Our sound engineer is Erica Huang, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with a woman who has spent the last 20 years preparing for the moment next month when the camera she designed and whose construction she oversaw will be launched a million miles out into space. She's astronomer Marsha Rieke, and her camera, called NearCam, will be a central part of the $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope, the successor to the Hubble. Oh, I hope we learn some really fantastic things and I hope the most fantastic is something we can't guess now. But the things we can predict ahead of time are things like we can measure what is in an atmosphere of an exoplanet around another star. Another astounding thing is that we should be able to see the first galaxies that come together after the Big Bang. We're going to learn so much about how galaxies change over time that that will probably pretty much revolutionize all the textbooks. (laughs) Marsha Rieke, next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alden. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.